Great work. <laughs> I'm surprised no one yelled amen. Uh, <laughs> wow, what a way to start, huh? Um, my name is uh, Andrew. I'm a pastor on staff here. It's great to be with you. And uh, if you've been with us uh, the last two weeks, uh, you know we've been in a three-part series uh, basically on sex. And uh, some of you, I'm sure, are rejoicing that this is the last Sunday in a while you will have to hear the word sex in church. Um, unfortunately, especially for you students out there, if there are any out here of the service, uh, this sermon is specifically on sex within marriage. That's what we just heard from Paul, which will immediately call to mind your parents. Uh, so it might get worse for you before it gets better. Uh, you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> Seriously, though, seriously, sex is a big deal in the Bible, not because it's so bad or it's bad, but because it's so precious. It's something designed by God for your marriage, and it is in many ways, it's a litmus test. It's, a, it's an outworking of your marriage, and it is by all accounts, uh, I think this is true from experience, one of the most fragile things in your marriage, uh, one of the things that, that's often first to break in a marriage. And this passage this morning uh, got me thinking about my own wedding day. It was almost six years ago that Becca and I uh, gave our vows to God and to one another, and in, and in many ways, there's no better picture of biblical faith, actually, than a, than a wedding day, because um, when you give those vows, you're, you're committing to this person, you have absolutely no idea what that means or what it will look like, no idea. All you're doing is committing to a person regardless of what the future holds, and in many ways, that's, that's a leap of faith, and because of that, uh, marriage is really, really hard. I mean, that's an understatement, but it's true. And I have to be careful because I don't think my wife is in the service. But mar yeah, marriage is really hard. Um, and I think I have a good marriage. But even, it's hard even with you. Oh, there's my wife. Oh, well. Uh, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> a little earlier would have been better, but uh, that'll do. <laughs> wow. We're never going to get through this, are we? Okay. Um, Marriage is hard even with Jesus. I cannot imagine doing it without him. Uh, my vows tried to warn me, but I did not understand. And now I know in my heart of hearts, I still don't understand. I still don't understand fully what marriage over a lifetime of up and down and back and forth is really like. And some of you are here this morning, you're, f you're further along than I am. You've persevered, you've been through the worst together in your marriage, you love each other. And others, uh, your marriage maybe is a total mess right now. Uh, you've considered divorce or you're just settling in for unhappiness and you don't know what that means. And maybe some of you still uh, are reeling from a past divorce, the pain of a divorce, whether uh, you are a spouse or you're a child in, in that world. And this is the last thing you really want to hear or talk about. You heard this passage right and you thought, oh no. no. No matter where we are today, and I know that we're probably all over the place in our marriages, in our relationships, we're confronted by this passage Really, we're confronted by God's design for marriage because marriage by God's design is not about you and it's not about me. Your marriage and your sex life within marriage is not about you. It's not about you. And yet we work, I'm convinced, <laughs> that so much of our unhappiness and brokenness in marriage is because we try so hard to make it about us. We keep working and fighting to make our marriage work for me and all along we had no idea what marriage was actually for. Now, if you're single today, or if you're perhaps a student, you're too young to be married anyway, you're already bored, this isn't for me. 
a few things on that before we kind of get started. First, you'll, you'll actually notice that Paul talks a lot about singleness, even in our passage today. Uh, we don't have time to cover that today, um, but we are preaching a sermon, a whole sermon on the single life uh, in two weeks, because Paul will go there at the end of chapter seven, and we all need to hear that message as well. And second, uh, per, and perhaps even more importantly, is the fact that your view of marriage, what it's for, will affect your, rela- your romantic relationships right now. If you don't have a vision for what marriage is now, how do you expect to choose a good mate if God should grant that? And, and students, this will affect how you date now or how you don't date now. And, and without this vision for marriage, how will you love and support and pray for your married friends? You have to know this. And don't worry, I'll, well, I, I'm going to say that we're going to say the same thing to your married friends when we get to singleness. We need to know that too. But let's, just a minute, let's back up. From, how, did, how did we get here? Why are we talking about marriage in the first place? Well, like I said before, Paul has been talking a lot about sex, and in a very general sense, he's been reminding all Christians that we were bought at a price. And so our sex lives, whether we are married or single, or we struggle with same-sex attraction, whether we struggle with lust, whatever, our sex lives do not belong to us. That's the basic Christian teaching. Our sex lives do not belong to us anymore. God owns and defines our sexuality right now. If you missed the last two weeks, listen to those podcasts online. They're so important. For this foundation. So here we are. Sex and marriage is, is where Paul goes next. And in, in some ways, for some of you, this may be the hardest topic of the three we've done. This is very personal for many of us. Uh, we kind of, in some ways, for some of you, moving from theory into outright meddling in your life <laughs> with this sermon. And it's because you know that your marriage is nowhere close to perfect. You've still got problems. You're probably, maybe you're thinking right now of things that happened this week, this morning in your marriage and you don't want to acknowledge it or discuss it, okay? I get it. The Corinthians probably felt the same way when they read this letter from Paul. They just wanted to move on, but Paul doesn't let them do that. So he confronts the people at the church who are sleeping with prostitutes. We talked about that. Some of them were married. He confronts the people at the church who thought that sex was always wrong, even in marriage. Some of them were married. And then he addresses the congregation's questions about divorce and remarriage, right? They're bringing these questions up, which with all the problems we've talked about, it makes sense that they're asking about divorce and remarriage. They're really struggling. And so Paul gives us three simple steps here for the perfect marriage. No, that's not true at all. (laughs) We wouldn't believe him if he did because there is no quick fix for marriage. Anyone who's been married for a while can tell you that. There is no quick fix for your marriage. Paul knows this. He knows that more than anything, the Corinthians need a reminder about what marriage really is, and so do we. Your marriage is not about you. And this works itself out in three concrete ways that Paul alludes to in our text this morning. So if you haven't turned to 1 Corinthians, uh, you can do that now. Chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. And the first way Paul reframes the way we look at marriage as Christians is this. This is the first thing he points out. Your marriage is about giving, not getting. Your marriage is about giving, not getting. Sex is a serious, one-of-a-kind, radical act of self-giving to another person. That is the biblical view. That is why Paul has said everything he said in chapter 6. Sex is a gift. It's a tremendous gift. It's a uniting action with another person. And that is why it is meant only in the context of a marriage why, and why it's so important to abstain from sex before marriage and why it's so important to practice sex during your marriage. Here's what Paul says in verse one. He says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And now just as an aside, uh, Paul has been addressing kind of rumors or concerns that others have raised about this church in the first six chapters. Now he's 
He's addressing questions that the church has actually written to him. So he's saying, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And that's in quotations, you'll notice, in, in most of your Bibles, uh, because Paul is quoting the Corinthian church back to them. This is something they wrote to him, this, this statement. This is what they think. Now, some in the church think it's better to not have sex at all, and, and that's not a biblical idea. That's the first thing Paul is pointing out. That is not, that's a Greek philosophical idea that the church is importing. The Greeks thought that the body was not important. They, they thought it was even bad. It was, it was a, a barrier to the spiritual life. You can see this idea in Plato and Aristotle and all the way down through Western philosophy. It's everywhere. So for some people, that meant you could do whatever you wanted with your body. The way they, they, the way they worked that out in their practical life is, I, God doesn't care what I do with my body. I can sleep with a prostitute. I can do whatever I want. And we've seen that problem in the Corinthian church. But for others, especially in this passage, it meant for them, you should never have sex with anyone. Your body, you shouldn't indulge your body at all, including your spouse. Even if you're married, you should not be having sex. And some today even think of sex as little more than a necessary evil for procreation. I mean, that's the idea. Or something to keep your husband happy. Listen, it's so much more than that. So much more. And it's Paul's point in the rest of the chapter, marriage and sex in marriage is about giving, not getting, not taking. Sex is a gift. It's a gift. First and foremost, Sex is a gift in the biblical worldview from God. Sex is a gift from God. It's his idea. He loves it. Just like he loves everything he's ever created. It is not dirty. It's, it is a beautiful thing. Sex in the context of a committed marriage is a gift to us. But it is not, let me clarify, the gift. It is not to be worshipped. It is a means for worship of God who created sex. Christians, we cannot, with that in mind, we cannot be anti-sex. That's unbiblical. Sex is a gift from God, but it is not. And, he, and here's where most of us get it wrong. Sex is a gift from God, but it is not a gift from God to you. It is a gift from God to your spouse. Do you see the difference? Sex is a gift from God, not to you but to your spouse. It's not something you get from your spouse. It's something you give to them. Look back at verse two. Paul says this, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each husband should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now what's so striking about what Paul's saying here about sex is the mutuality he's using to describe it. The wife should give her body to the husband willingly and selflessly. And then in an, in an incredible countercultural way, Paul says, husband, you too likewise give your body to your wife because she has authority over your body. Now, if the Corinthians had paid Paul's salary, he, he never would have said that, okay? <laughs> That's why Paul always worked side jobs so that he could say whatever he needed to say. Because no one, no one, no one, no one in the Greco-Roman world would ever have said that. Would have said, husband, your body belongs to your wife. Completely countercultural, but biblical idea. Sex is designed mutually to be a gift to one another. And I want to be really sensitive here, okay? As we, as we dive in, there is a disappointment in marriage and a frustra there's frustration and there's regret and there's apathy. And if you've been hurt or abused, I am sorry. It may be very painful for you to even think about the subject we're talking about right now. Your situation, 
maybe more complex than we can possibly address in this context in a sermon, but I want you to hear from me, there's hope. It does not have to be that way. God has designed you and your marriage for much more than that, and I realize that may seem absolutely impossible right now. If this describes you, please, please, please seek help. Don't do that alone. I'd be happy to refer you to some incredible people we have here, incredible counselors, so you're not alone. Please seek someone out. But don't, all of us, don't miss this. Demanding sex, here's Paul's point, demanding sex from your spouse is a sin. But so is withholding sex. Paul's prohibiting both of those things. Now, obviously, there's, there's, this is more of a tension to be managed in your marriage than a one-time decision to be made, right? There are times when not tonight is absolutely appropriate. There are times when not tonight is selfish and it's insensitive to your spouse's needs. And, and we have to use wisdom there. We cannot use sex, this much is clear, we cannot use sex to control one another, to manipulate one another, or to punish each other. This requires wisdom and grace. Like I said, above all, it requires viewing sex not as a special treat or something that you deserve and that you can demand, but as a good gift that you can give to one another and practice together regularly. This is why sex is also a gift not only from God for your spouse, but it's a gift for your whole marriage. It's a gift to your marriage. It's a gift to your relationship. Sex is not the goal of your marriage, but nor is it optional for your marriage. And Paul puts this in verse 5. He says, Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, I say this as a concession, not a command. And, and this word for deprive, it says don't deprive one another. It really means to rob or steal. He's saying don't rob your marriage of sex. Don't cheat your marriage with this decision. And for obvious reasons, Paul's pointing out that a lousy, unhealthy, or non-existent sex life can open the door for Satan's temptation. There are, there's good reason, I mean, that's pretty self-explanatory. There, there's good reason uh, here to think that part of the prostitution problem at Corinth was related to little or no sex within some of the marriages there. But it's not just that. Sex is not just to keep us from temptation. It's not just a concession Sex is biblically, it's a living metaphor for your commitment and love for each other no matter what. That's what it is. Self-giving joy in the bedroom leads to self-giving joy in the rest of your marriage. And self-giving joy in the, in the rest of your marriage leads to self-giving joy in the bedroom. Now, I get it. I'm a guy. Some of you out there are thinking, you're just saying more sex because you're a guy. I, I get it. <laughs> Listen, I had my wife read this. I had a female counselor read this. I'm not trying to give this sermon as just a guy. This is, I'm convinced, this is how God designed it. And intimacy here leads to intimacy there, you see? Sex is not optional in marriage, not because it's so great. It ebbs and it flows, just like everything else in the marriage. It's not optional because it unites the married couple like nothing else can do. The two shall become one flesh. It's a reenactment of your marriage vows, a reminder of your commitment over and over again. That's why Paul says that even a mutually agreed upon time in your marriage without sex is permissible, but only as a concession, not as a demand. And, and if you have the ESV, it, it gets it wrong here. Uh, they make that statement where Paul says, I say this as a concession, not, uh, not as a command. They make that statement in verse 6, seem like it points forward to the new paragraph about singleness, but it actually points backward to the time of mutual consent to not have sex. He, Paul's saying, if you really want to, 
You can agree to a mutual time where you don't come together, but I would never advise that or command it. (laughs) That's what Paul is saying. It's that important, Paul is saying. And I love the way Tim and Kathy Keller, in their book, they, they put it, in The Meaning of Marriage, they put it this way. They say, indeed, sex is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely and permanently and exclusively to you. You must not use sex to say anything less. So according to the Bible, a covenant is necessary for sex because it creates a place of security for vulnerability and intimacy. But though a marriage covenant is necessary for sex, sex is also necessary for the maintenance of the covenant. It is your covenant renewal service. Ultimately then, sex isn't even about physical pleasure. That's just a byproduct. It's about an intimacy with your partner that communicates something profound about who God is. That's why the physical part of sex gets less and less important the further you get into your marriage. And the New York Times ran an article with the title, Married Sex Gets Better in the Golden Years. And uh, I, I, I know I say that now everyone in here is thinking about their parents, no matter how old you are. Um, <laughs> oh, well. Uh, one lady, this is just so beautiful. Her, Jeannie B. was how she was named in the article. She'd recently lost her husband after 50 years of marriage. And she put it so well in the article. She said, there's an intimacy that comes later in life that is staggeringly wonderful. You can hold hands with this person you love and adore, and somehow it's just as passionate as having sex at an earlier age. There is such a sense of connection and intimacy that grows out of a long relationship. That touch carries with it the weight of so many memories. But of course, I would not have known that during my first 30 or 40 years of marriage, when sex was of paramount importance, our our recreation and our solace. I'm quite sure younger people would shake their heads and think, poor old soul, her sex life was probably not very good, but they would be wrong. Sex gets better over time in marriage because even as your body fails you, and it will, the covenant that sex points to and reinforces, it only deepens. It only gets better. That's a beautiful thing. But notice that can only happen in the context of a marriage, of a covenant relationship. That is why we have spent so much time talking about the danger of sex before or outside of a marriage covenant. Because the marriage covenant is a picture of God's covenant and his commitment to you. Good sex tells a story about who God is and we have to get it right. Because notice, God does not give part of himself to people. You ever notice that? God doesn't give part of himself to people. He gives, all of, he gives everything he's got to you. When you share your body with someone that you are not willing to share your finances with and your children with and your job with and your decision with, all the things that go along with being married, your whole life with them, if you are unwilling to do that, then you are forgetting the God who loves you. He would never do that to you, ever. That's not who he is. And the same is true with lust and pornography. These are marriage killers. Lust, by definition, takes. By definition, takes. Biblical sex, by definition, gives. If you take there, you will take here. And it will destroy your marriage. It happens over and over again. Satan will do anything to get you to have sex before you are married. And then he will do everything he can to stop you from having sex once you are married. Because the covenant of marriage that he hates so much demands both. 
Your marriage is about giving good gifts, not, whatever, not getting whatever you want. And it's a beautiful picture of the way God feels about you. Which is also why, Paul, and Paul goes there next. This is also why divorce is such a devastating thing in the Bible. Just ask anyone who's been through one, they'll tell you. Whether as a spouse or as a child, it is a devastating reality to live through. It is not the way it's supposed to be. And now I fully acknowledge as we, as we dive into this, as someone still relatively new to marriage, that there is so much pain and frustration and heartache around this question, this topic, that I do not fully comprehend. I just don't. And I also know that there are marriages right now in this room on the brink, and this is seriously the last thing you want to hear. And some of you are truly victims of wrongdoing perpetrated by your spouse. And what they've done or what they're doing is not okay. Okay, again, let us help you if that's where you are. But despite all of that and despite all the pain and the past in this room this morning, even if our marriages are lousy right now, we cannot forget this. Your marriage is about holiness, not happiness. This is Paul's point. Your marriage is about holiness, not happiness. And our greatest need is not a good marriage. Our greatest need is not a great sex life. Our greatest need is not happiness at all. Our greatest need is a rescue, a rescue from the sin in our lives that separates us from God. Our greatest need is for Jesus to save us and to make us holy even when we are not. And if that is true, if what we've just said is true, then maybe, just maybe, we can truly hear together what the Bible has to say about divorce. I know there comes a point in many marriages where the reality is, and it's, it's real, it's true, that you would be happier without that person, at least in the short term, than with that person. But that's not really the point. If you have Jesus, and this is true of any area of life, if you have Jesus, the question is not what is going to make me happy, but what is going to make me holy? What is going to make me more like Jesus? Imagine how different all of our lives would be, regardless of where we are with this, if we thought that way. And Paul puts it this way in verse 10. He says, to the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. And, and by that he means Jesus directly taught on this. He's paraphrasing Jesus. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, if you've been paying attention to Paul's high view of marriage at all, this should not come as a surprise. What God has put together really cannot be pulled apart. Now, when uh, Jesus prohibited divorce in places like Matthew 5, he pointed out that divorce was permissible only in the case of sexual immorality. And Paul adds another possible reason here in verse 15 for divorce. He, and here's this, he says, if there are two non-believers who are married and one of them comes to faith and the other one does not, and this other one who didn't leaves because of the tension caused, divorce is permissible. That's the concession that he gives. Now, that is not to say, listen carefully to me, that is not to say that as a Christian, marrying or dating someone who is not a Christian is okay. Very different than what Paul's talking about. For those of you who are out there dating someone who is not a Christian, and you're hoping that your example will convert them, it's called evangelating, if you've ever heard of it, that is, a, that is incredibly unwise incredibly unwise. Paul is talking to people here who got married and they later came to Christ, okay? Totally different situation. When he turns and addresses people who want to get married or remarried, he'll say, that's okay, 
but only in the Lord. Verse 39 of chapter 7, only in the Lord. That is someone who shares your faith in Jesus. You can marry them. The absolute best thing you can do for the person you love who does not know the Lord is to get out of the way and point them to Jesus. Dating that person is not helping them. Okay, that was a bit of a soapbox. Okay, back. There may be other reasons that a divorce is permissible by the same principle that Paul and Jesus are, are using here, maybe abuse or, or some other extreme case. Honestly, the Bible is not, is not clear there. What is abundantly clear, however, in the Bible is that God hates divorce, that it is contrary to his design, that it is never ideal, it's never good, and it destroys what God says is beautiful. That's very clear. And here's where I need to get a little harsh, okay? It is also clear that reasons like falling out of love or fighting a lot or getting bored or growing apart or a bad sex life or general unhappiness are not permissible reasons to get a divorce. Those are just sin. Now again, I am not trying to heap on guilt, nor can I claim to understand what it is like to be in a bad marriage. And from what I can tell, it's one of the hardest things a person can endure in this life. And frankly, Paul does not paint a rosy picture here. He doesn't say, hey, if you stay in your marriage, eventually it'll get better. He doesn't say that. Nor does he promise that if you do everything right, your marriage won't fall apart. He doesn't promise. This is messy stuff. But our vision and our goal must be holiness, not happiness, or we will destroy our marriages. If I look to Becca to make me happy, I will crush her, and she will disappoint me. No offense. It's true. If together as two broke, however, if together as two broken, sinful, and selfish people, we commit by God's grace and power to make each other holy, then and only then will we find true happiness. That's the deal. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin that the church has often made it out to be in the past. This is a place of grace and forgiveness, and God has a plan and a purpose for second marriages and blended families. He, he takes our messes, he makes them beautiful, that is what he's best at. But if you played a part in a divorce, have you ever repented from it? Have you ever acknowledged the role that you played in it and asked for forgiveness from God? Have you intentionally learned from your mistakes, whether you've remarried or not? Are you actively inviting God into your marriage now, even if you haven't been divorced? Maybe your marriage is headed to divorce right now. Have you asked for help, or are you just hiding? Are you too scared? Are you too embarrassed? One more false move from your spouse, or the day you aren't satisfied anymore, you're gone. That's what's in your mind. That, that is not what marriage is for. Are you catching a vision here? Are you catching a vision here for what marriage can be, what it should be with God's help? What is most important to you? Is it being happy or is it being holy? That's a question for all of our marriages, and frankly, it's a question for all of our lives. Jesus taught that whoever loses his life will find it, and by that he meant if you aim in your life and in your relationships and in your marriage, if you aim for happiness, you will miss it. But if you aim for holiness, eventually you'll get happiness too. That's what he meant. Marriage is no different. It's about holiness first, not happiness. Now I say that like that's how I've always treated my marriage, and it's not. It's not at all. Sure, I've had, I have my moments when I get it right, and Becca's gracious to, to remember those, <laughs> to focus on those. 
But honestly, I am a selfish person. I'm a lustful person. I'm a coward sometimes. I just want my way. I, I just want to do with my time what I want to do with my time. Does that sound familiar at all? Is there a marriage in this room that is not broken, is not seriously broken in one way or another or at one time or another? You know, it's funny, I emailed several couples that I know personally who have marriages that I respect and admire and marriages that I'd like to have in in 20 or 30 or 40 years, uh, God willing. And I asked them to share advice with me that I might possibly use in the sermon and they gave me great advice, I just didn't have time to put it in. But you know the most helpful thing that they all said to me? besides saying yes to you whenever possible. That was also helpful. Um, here's the, the most helpful thing they said was, they all said, why in the world are you asking us what a good marriage looks like? <laughs> Every single one. No one has arrived. No one. And more fundamentally, we all have broken marriages with God. That's the biblical story. All throughout the Bible, God is again and again shown to be the betrayed and the miserably unhappy husband of a wife who could care less about him. And the wife in that story is us. That's us. Every single one of us, we are all in a broken marriage right now, whether we know it or not. But here's the thing, and Paul Paul hints at it here, but this is how we have got to end this sermon, okay? Your marriage is not defined by your failures, past, present, or future. It is not defined by your failures. It is defined by his grace. No matter where you find yourself today, right now, there is an opportunity, there is a possibility that if we let him to have God's grace change everything in our lives. Paul points uh, it it this way, he puts it this way in, in, in the letter of Corinthians, starting in verse 13. He says, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Then skip to verse 16. He says, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, you have to understand when Paul says this, to be a Christian in the first century, uh, married to a pagan, there was no uh, more impossible marriage on paper in the world than that. Completely different values, completely different worldviews completely different gods that you worshiped. Imagine being married in that circumstance. There's no way this marriage can make it. That's why the Corinthians are asking, they're begging Paul, please let us get divorced. It's better for everyone involved. But Paul says no. He says, if they divorce you, fine. There's nothing you can do about that. But not the other way around. Not the other way around. Paul does not focus on what is permissible in your marriage. He focuses on what is possible. What is always possible, even in the most impossible of marriages? And and what gave him this hope in this clearly hopeless situation? How can he possibly ask someone to do what he's asking them to do? What does he see that we don't? It's the grace of God. God's grace, his saving, redemptive, mysterious, powerful grace is always at work in your marriage. Always. Paul says, your husband, your wife, your children, yourself might be saved. Don't end your marriage because you think it's beyond redemption. God is working now, right now, in ways you cannot fathom or perceive. Grace is always, always, always possible. So don't give up, says Paul. Hold on. 
And God proves that grace is always possible in our marriages because Jesus died not simply to save us from sin, but to make us a bride fit for God for eternity. God did not abandon us. He had every right to divorce us. Every reason the Bible gives for how divorce is permissible, we did. Adultery, desertion, abuse, you name it, we did it. We were enemies of God, but now, because of Jesus, we are not simply friends of God. We are the spouse of God. That's the promise of the Bible. If God's grace can do that, if God can reconcile a cosmically bad marriage, if he can fix a universe-shattering divorce that happened in the Garden of Eden, that's what it is, then what can he not do in your marriage and in mine? There's always hope and forgiveness in Christ, but there's also power. There's a power in the foolishness of the cross that is working in ways that we cannot perceive. It's a power at work in your marriage right now. If you're looking for a reason to stay married today, the Bible only gives you one reason to do so, and it's this. It's that God will never, ever, ever leave you, nor divorce you, nor forsake you. There is a power in believing that that can endure all things. And we need to remember God's marriage to us this morning. That's what we need. We wanted, because of that, we wanted one of our responses to be taking the Lord's Supper today. Because when Jesus taught his disciples to take the Lord's Supper, when Jesus compared the bread and the wine to his body being broken for you and his blood shed for you, he wasn't just teaching. He was making a vow. He was making a marriage vow to you. That's what he's doing. When we get married, our vows are meant to bind us to one another through any possible circumstance, right? Sickness and in health, till death do us part. Healthy, sick, better, worse, rich, poor. Jesus is saying, I'm about to go through the worst of circumstances for the sake of our marriage. I am going to absorb all the punishment that you deserve, and even death will not separate us. Even death will not destroy my love and my dedication and my commitment to you. And it is because of his vow this commitment from Jesus to you that Paul can say in Romans, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. That is how strong your marriage is with him. Therefore, when we take communion together, don't just do it to get it over with. Remember that now you are making a marriage vow, a wedding vow to God. That's what you're doing. Remember that in a sense you are saying when you take these elements, I, Andrew, take you, Jesus, to be my savior and my defining relationship forever. That's what's happening. It's a wedding ceremony. If you aren't ready for that commitment, if you aren't a follower of Jesus, then, then feel free not to come. Reflect on what you've heard this morning and consider what Jesus' sacrifice means to you. But if you are a follower, please come. There are stations all around the room for us to respond. Please come and renew your wedding vows this morning.